0: Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have with us today Raj Yavadkar. He's the Chief Technology Officer at Juniper Networks. Raj, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Oh, thank you. My pleasure is mine. Thanks.
0: Um, I want to kind of summarize your background first. Uh, you've spent 10 years at Intel as an Intel Fellow. Then you went to VMware, spent four years there in senior executive roles. Then you went to Google and Spent two years there working on Google Cloud networking, and at the start of last year, you became CTO of Juniper. You replaced Bikash Kale. Um, Bikash went back to Google to head uh, Google Global Networking. Um, Google's obviously doing something right, attracting top networking talent. Um, so it must be that they're doing something very interesting network-wise uh, that that uh, creates a draw. What was it for you?
1: I think uh, when I was at VMware, I decided to go back, to, uh, go to Google because. Google has probably the largest cloud network in the world. Uh, and reason for that is, unlike other hyperscalers, they host about eight to nine applications with more than a billion users each on that network because of the infrastructure just huge. So I started a career with PhD networking. I was uh, associated with some of the internet pioneers like my advisor, Dacomer, Windsurf. Dave Clark and those people. So I always had passion for networking. So as a VMware, I was not doing networking. I was working more on hybrid cloud, multi-cloud automation uh, uh, kind of a product. So I was really attracted to go work on a very large-scale cloud infrastructure, network infrastructure and products also for cloud networking. Uh, that was the draw.
0: So was the challenge of, of doing something at that scale, which is different from... Um, unique, right? From from anything that you can exactly. get to do anywhere yeah.
1: else. Yeah, the other part is also uh, if you were around '90s when net, internet really started exploding, there's a very small set of people around the country who are networking experts. Most of them are in Google today. So all of my colleagues I know from those days, you know, when I nice to interact. They happen to be there. So that also becomes a nice draw. You know, you go back and see, you know, Van Jacobson is there. I mean, surf is there, there are lots of people like
0: that, yeah. So like all the cool guys are there and you want to be, you want to be there as well. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, and I'm, I'm, there are probably a million of these things, but uh, maybe you could tell us some of the biggest things you learned, biggest lessons learned while building cloud networks at that scale.
1: Yeah, so the most important thing is, uh, it's not building the network itself, but the cloud networking requires you to provide the virtual networking infrastructure and build products on top of that, which is a major software development thing. And what I liked about Google is that it's unique in terms of software development methodology. No other company has a methodology that Google has now, because a lot of people left Google to do startups that trickling down in the valley. But Google is definitely sets a very high bar in terms of how the software development is done. And it was a pleasure to learn and work with some very smart engineers.
0: And you're talking about the kind of the quick release cycle, constantly updating,
1: um, that kind of thing, CI, CD. Yeah, CI, CD, but also every developer is responsible for testing the code, complete. There's no separate quality assurance team, no separate team. So every developer is responsible for the quality of the code they develop. And the way they get get evaluated, every performance cycle, is based on code reviews, quality of the code reviews, how you did testing, all that stuff. And this is all automated in terms of tools.
0: It sounds great. Um, I need to apply that model to to editing and writing. If, If every journalist is responsible for quality of their own article, my, my life would be so much easier. So let's rewind a little bit to your time at VMware. One of the biggest achievements there for you was VMware Cloud Foundation. Pretty successful piece of technology, uh, pretty fundamental to VMware's business right now. What was your role in creating
1: that platform? That's a good question. So, you know, being an Intel fellow, I was more of an individual contributor, leading technology development in networking, system architecture, data center networking, data center systems and so on. So when I went to VMware, uh, I was surprised that VMware was struggling that time. They did not have a good story around cloud and they were getting beaten up in the market by multiple people. They're missing the trend and so on. So my boss there, Ray O'Farrell, who later on became chief development officer and chief technology officer, gave me a simple, he said, this is a blank sheet. You need to help us figure out what should we do with cloud. And with that assignment, I started this project from scratch. It went through lots of code names, Virtual Rack, Evo Rack, Evo STDC, finally Virtual uh, VMware Cloud Foundation. And what I did is I went and talked to a bunch of customers to figure out why enterprises, are um, uh, looking at cloud as the model, and what do they want to achieve? And one of the observation was that VMware had introduced the concept of software-defined data center to bring all of VMware software, compute, storage, virtualization, networking, at the cloud, the, the, the login site, uh, very large operations all. But they're all individual products, and it's a very hard to assemble them together to create the software-defined data center. So one of the first tasks I took upon is that we'll automate everything with a very audacious goal that one should be able to bring up the private cloud in any enterprise, any data center in half a day when it was taking three months using professional services at that time. So we assembled a team which focused on day zero, bring up deployment, installation, how to make it extremely automated. Same thing for day zero, day one and day two operations, batching, upgrading, all sorts of life management, monitoring. And it took us almost two and a half to three years, two and a half years to get alpha out. And VMware had some really good early adopter customers who acted as early design partners with us. I remember going to Minneapolis, Twin Cities, there were 10 large enterprises there. They're all willing to work with you. And that helped me develop this product called VMware Cloud Foundation which not only became the private cloud product automation but also became the first product to run in IBM public cloud. We partnered with IBM public cloud and then VMware took it to run in AWS. Today it runs in VMware on AWS. It's a billion dollar revenue uh, uh, since it started shipping in three years reached a billion dollar mark. So I'm very proud of that. It's not just me. I, there were a bunch of people I worked with. I am extremely good collaboration with a lot of people, but I got this unique opportunity, um, uh, thanks to Ray and Pat, uh, to really do something from scratch as a, almost like a startup and bring all the pieces together and focus on high degree of integration automation. I really love that experience. And, and so there's a lot of pieces, right? And it was uh... I mean, obviously, it was
0: very complicated from an organizational standpoint. Can you share maybe also some lessons learned there, maybe for for your peers or or people kind of in similar positions today that are tasked with building maybe a platform out of um in in a in a big company where there's lots of disparate units and every unit yeah. has their own product. Um, what, what are some of the lessons there that, you, that you'd like to share? The
1: biggest lesson is that, you know, each one of them has their own product roadmap, timeline. So if you go and tell them, please do something for me to make it easier, it falls on the deaf ears for a good reason. Because they have their own priorities. They are trying to do their rewarded and evaluated for meeting their own targets. So what I did is that I used my resources as a currency to embed my resources in those teams to say that I will provide you the resource to do some changes. And those people will sit with your engineers. So nobody is putting attacks on you. I had to do that with vSphere, which is the most important business VMware has, vSAN, NSX and those people. And that really created a sense of collaboration, co-development and I did not feel, uh, feel so much resistance to change and uh, making changes which makes the integration automation easier. And that's a very important. I've seen working with larger companies, right? When you go to other people, it's important to offer them some help rather than impose a burden because even if you come top, come top down, your management supports you, that creates a ground level resistance and that's not good. The second thing I learned very quickly is that, we were uh, doing iterative development of our bring-up and deployment installation because that was such a complex piece and we're trying to compress the time cycle in terms of how quickly. So getting this in the hands of some early customers and let them try out and give us the feedback was another good thing that really helped us.
0: And you're now CTO in this role for about one year. You were previously pretty senior as well. How is being CTO different from being
1: one or two steps maybe below the corporate hierarchy? So I think uh, one of the most important differences I see is that you have to take a corporate level view. You don't have to own anything specifically necessarily, but everything you try to look at, it's from all broad corporate perspective, across the product portfolio, across the thing. Because my boss, Rami, looks at me as a person who is there to help him, guide the rest of the people when it comes to technology, engineering, development, and so on. So that's a very different role. It's a role of you know to some extent internal evangelist, uh, external evangelist. I May mean, I get called into the accounts to talk to uh, the execs in a large accounts, right? That's having some problem. They expect me to act as their ambassador, going inside Juniper and solve the problems. So that's very different. That's something very different. What are Juniper's
0: priorities in the data center market this year? Um, and then also, what are its more strategic goals in the in the data center longer term, say five years out? Where is the puck going?
1: So the immediate goal is we just completed our acquisition of Abstra Networks. Uh, we did that because to go into data center against our competition, we did not have a fabric management solution uh, when I came came on board last year. One of the things I really pushed for is first whether we should do organic development of our own fabric management. But it became very clear to meet the market demand and move fast, we need to do inorganic investments. So that's why we evaluated multiple options and chose appstar networks, they're part of it. They bring very clearly an advantage with respect to close group automation with analytics. And they're also multi-vendor, they support multiple vendors. So this becomes a good insertion point, in not just in greenfield data centers, but even a brownfield where they already have some vendor, but we can go in and insert ourselves from our fabric perspective, while providing the value they provide through closed-loop automation and analytics. But my ambition for Juniper is to go beyond fabric management and automation. I'm looking at it from data center automation perspective. When I talk to many cloud majors and data center operators, they all have aspiration to achieve hyperscaler-like operations experience. They look at these big hyperscalers and say that with small SRE team, they manage the large data center. They don't divide into network, storage, compute, it's all together, right? And they're able to correlate. They're able to do uh, root cause diagnostics and mediation very quickly, right? With the SLA of three hours through uh, 12 hours and 24 hours, not days. Everybody wants to be like that. To be able to do that, we need to provide them a data center automation solution which takes into account not just networking, correlations with all the other workloads, all other loads, like um, uh, compute, storage, analytics, and provide the level of automation that allows them to achieve that hyperscaler-like operations experience.
0: You're talking about not just from the networking perspective, right, but also compute and storage and everything else. Um, How, I guess, how far-reaching do you see Juniper's role there?
1: So our role has to be driven from networking infrastructure perspective. In some cases, plugging into third-party tools that are used also. But I'll give a concrete example, right? If you're a data center operator and you see an issue with one of our workloads, it could be that you are using desegregated storage and one of your applications, which is suppose AI, ML or high-performance computing application, it's having some performance issues, such as going from there to root cause diagnostics which might be one of the leaf switches link broke to the uh, um, spine switch or maybe the buffers deep buffer switches are having uh, contention for buffers that level of diagnostics and correlation today takes a lot of time it's not easy to do because how you monitor applications is very different than how you monitor networking uh, traffic You have to have some correlations. So we acquired a company called NetRounds. They do active network probing so that they can get data about the end-to-end service level assurance, which can be correlated with workloads. If we are able to do that in real time, then the root cause diagnostics from workload perspective, application becomes easier. That may require us to plug into application level monitoring. We don't have to do ourselves application monitoring. But network is essential part of that solution. Because if you look at any of the uh, problems you see in terms of compute storage interaction or one workload not being able to access another thing, they all go through networking. So we can level that, uh, um, we can raise the level of that automation and insights. by, uh, And that's my goal. That's I think Juniper can play a role there and we can change the level of experience people have.
0: And, and from a business perspective, what is the advantage for Juniper in, in having that kind of that level of visibility, that level of uh, management um, looking at because applications? Because now we
1: are not only providing uh, solutions for switch fabrics like hardware platforms, we start providing SaaS based software products, which add value right, which increases our software revenue and also uh, that's where the world is going. And we become one of the major contributors to the efficiency in data centers. Today the data centers send, and this is also relevant to service providers. So if you look at the 5G densification, it's requiring lots of local data centers, small data centers, but they're going to be in a metro area. It could be as many well as thousand small data, data centers requiring manual operation of those is not possible even for a service provider. They would be looking for automation. This kind of uh, uh, automation can help them because what are the local data centers doing? They're doing aggregation of 5G traffic maybe. There might be video traffic. There might be cloud gaming traffic and correlation to any networking issues for quick diagnostics, quick remediation, self-healing is very important for efficiency.
0: And um, I have to ask your thoughts on the SolarWinds breach. That's the biggest story right now in in the industry. Um, What should be the enterprise IT industry's response? Should everybody just kind of do better at following the best practices uh, or should there be some big wholesale changes to the way things are done?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's more than that, right? It's not going to be sufficient to follow because uh, we are increasingly using a lot more open source packages or tools like SolarWinds or anything uh, because those are necessary to be able to uh, do threat analysis, threat prevention. And when you do that, um, the source of the software, the supply chain of the software is not secure. It's not guaranteed to be secure, right? People have done that to some extent in manufacturing supply chain. They have very good tracking, they know using blockchain or distributed ledger, you can actually verify at every point uh, your supply chain security. Software supply chain does not have that concept of security. You source a tool, you get patches, you get hot fixes, you upgrade them, but there is no uh, uh, security uh, secure mechanism that's deployed using either distributed ledgers or something like that. That level of authentication we only do in, the, in terms of integrity checks. You know, you get an image, you can do integrity checks to make sure somebody has not tampered with that. But that is not enough. If the source is compromised, then you got delivered an image which is already compromised.
0: So you're saying the software industry should take a few pages out of the hardware industry's playbook, exactly, in yeah. the way they manage the supply chain. Do you see that happening? Do you, do you um, or you know? There is a, a tendency for people to, you know, when something big happens, big and disruptive, um, people kind of get energized about changing things, and then um, slowly but surely things kind of snap back into their old patterns. Do you do you see like do you see the solar winds situation as providing the necessary push to for that to really happen, for
1: that kind of change? I'm hopeful for two reasons, right? There are two big parties here who could push that change. One is government because there's a national security at stake, so something will be done from that perspective to start addressing the uh, challenge. This was done long time back um, uh, in the semiconductor industry, for example, for different reasons. So I think government can play a big role because they themselves have to secure uh, the infrastructure that our government runs on, right? Military, non-military, everything. Second is hyperscalers. It's a competitive advantage if the hyperscaler can assure its customers, you run SolarWinds on my platform, I'll make sure that it's secure. Now, how do I do that? Because I will work with these people uh, because this concept of app store that you know has an iPhone has or bec- uh, any phone has become a powerful tool because that's a t- mechanism by which you can police and enforce any me- uh, any controls you want. So they could come at it from a competitive perspective and say that if I do this better than my competition and the hyperscaler right now, the top three or top five, the competition is fierce, right? Each one of them is growing at 25, 40, 70%, depends on who you are. And there's a lot of business too, but there's also a lot of competition because people seem to be choosing two public clouds and sticking to that typically in a multi-cloud environment. So I think those two uh, parts of the ecosystem could make real change happen in happen.
0: so some regulation in combination with um one of the very basic principles of capitalism
1: and first is not regulation right it's so much about not regulation but putting controls on what they source and how they source right i see that could be the one yeah, because I'll give you an example, right? All the public key cryptography got a big boost when the military and uh, government sources, NIST and all, started requiring two hundred fifty six bit keys and stuff like that. Oh, and I that see.
0: That I see. So not regulation, but uh, actually requiring, asking of companies that serve government exactly. to follow certain standards. Yeah. I see.
1: I'm not a fan of regulation, I think necessarily. Uh, regulation is good, but you know it limits. Uh, um, really the innovation, so you have to be careful.
0: Hybrid cloud. Companies are combining public cloud with on-prem or color deployments. Um, you were deeply, deeply um, aware of all those things when you were at VMware, I'm sure. Um, we may see more public cloud infrastructure like Outposts or Azure Stack on-premises in the coming years. Yeah. Um, how has this trend affect, affected Juniper's technology roadmap?
1: So I think uh, all of those cases that you mentioned, hybrid networking, multi-cloud, require connectivity and we provide connectivity. So that part is a good news. Even if you have AWS Outposts or any product you mentioned at the edge of the cloud or on-prem gate deployed, it requires networking. That network infrastructure we provide. But more importantly, there's an opportunity for us to do multi-cloud networking or hybrid networking by providing VPC gateways. So you can take your on-prem virtual private cloud and extend it to any public cloud. If you are multi-cloud, you need connection between them. You need transit gateway. You want a transit gateway in a way that you have connectivity that doesn't cost you because some of the hyperscalers charge you if you go through the transit gateway. But I would like to provide you connectivity across multiple cloud, which doesn't require you to pay for any additional. It's the same bits going everywhere. The other part is SD-WAN. SD-WAN is because of remote work that increased during COVID. SD-WAN is getting even more adoption, right? That's where the campus and branch connectivity happens either through the public cloud or without public cloud in a partial mesh or full mesh. That sort of connectivity where we are bringing a product to the market through our 128 technology acquisition which is completely tunnelless, doesn't require tunnels. That's a big advantage to start using that as a way to provide hybrid connectivity. And you can combine security with that. So you don't have to have a centralized security setting in some hyperscaler which is a distributed security through SD-WAN. That every time I do session based routing and I go from a branch to campus in a direct connectivity I can put security controls. All those are opportunities for Juniper without having to compete with hyperscalers. But be more complementary to them but still exploit all these uh, opportunities.
0: Another big trend is big hardware vendors, HP, Dell, pushing the hardware as a service idea. Um, is, yeah. is Juniper also going to eventually try to sell data center switches on demand as a subscription? Is that something you guys are looking at seriously? Uh,
1: I, I, I don't want to talk about the exact plans, but I'll I tell you, make a statement which is important. I think more and more, it's, people are going to consume infrastructure as a service. And if you look at from between now and 10 years from now, I see almost everything being confused as a service. So one example of that is some of the colo service providers are already starting to do that. They're trying to provide network as a service, computer as a service. That shows the that's leading indication that that's going to happen. When that happens, I think naturally people like us and everybody else, we have to think about how do we operate in that world where we offer infrastructure as a service, but also more importantly, what software are we build on top of that and make it available to make it easier to consume any of the services any of the infrastructure as a service.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I see that as a big opportunity. It's also transformation that the industry is going to go through, whether it happens in five years or 10 years is an open question. Sometimes it might get accelerated, but we have to be prepared for that. And we are definitely getting ready for that.
0: And I want to go back to the AppStra acquisition. Um, We're talking on January 28th. Uh, The AppStra deal was closed just yesterday. At least that's when the press release went out. AppStra is described as an intent-based networking and network automation software company. What are the most important pieces of AppStra's technology for Juniper and how has Juniper been integrating those pieces into its portfolio?
1: Yeah, so the most important thing they do is closed-loop automation uh, with their intent based uh, things. So they have so-called blueprints which allow you to design your fabric based on one of the well-known f- blueprints and blueprints come with the notion that you have a conti- certain configuration intent what you want to achieve and they continuously verify your running state against that intended state. A- any deviation they can immediately diagnose, right? which is a sort of closed loop automation which changes the way people think about network fabrics and how they operate. So our first goal is that make sure all our switch fa- switches, all our switches and routers are supported through th- that fabric management. Second is to take the analytics, take the close-up automation and build upon that with our net active probing capability. We have our product for bot for analytics, combining that so that we can provide a lot more value, even in a multi-window environment with respect to data center automation. So for example, one of the priorities will be provide the easiest way and fastest way to do root cause diagnostics. Do that in a way that's useful. Just telling me that one switch cable went bad or uh, one switch failed is not important. If I cannot also have the root cause identification when something else. Is the first indication of something failing, such as my Zoom call failed, or my uh, the corporate level uh, presentation that was happening has some glitches. Those kind of things we have to be able to identify very quickly.
0: Juniper, I think this was maybe 10 years ago when Juniper had took a big um, a big stab at creating and selling a fabric. I think it was called Q fabric.
1: Q fabric, yeah, yeah.
0: And I'm and, and I'm wondering today um, is anything, are any components of of those activities, uh, are still you know, at Juniper are still part of Juniper's technology? Um, has that are there still echoes of that of that effort? And then obviously the the, another, the second part of the question is the the very definition of of fabric um, must have changed now. So what what, what yes. Juniper meant by fabric when they were. Uh, selling Q fabric and what you're talking about now are probably very different things.
1: Yeah, I agree. So I think the Q fabric exists in terms of QFX switches and some of the switching technology, uh, some of the deep buffer uh, switching that we do, which is our biggest our differentiator, that exists. What's different is that the Q fabric was a stateful concept. Right? It was a concept of building stateful fabric. Now the fabrics are purely Ethernet based, stateless IP fabrics. That's what has changed. Right? And we have changed with that. We have now the portfolio which is very modern, compatible with what rest of the world. Advantage of the stateless thing is that it's much easier to manage, recover from errors and so on. Right? But it also allows you, creates new problems. Statelessness means that any time the fabric has issues, you need some good ways to do root cause identification right? Because there's no state being maintained anywhere. It's only end-to-end state. You send in a traffic, it comes out at the other end, it doesn't come out, then you better trace it and find out. That's where the opportunity is with all this closed loop automation, and that's where Abstra makes a lot of sense to us, because they provide that level of automation. And now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. Uh,
0: it's obviously redistributed networking demand, geographically speaking. Um, what impact has this workforce redistribution, if any, head on the data center networking tech? Has it altered Juniper's data center strategy in any way?
1: Yeah, both. I think the, first of all, what has altered is that uh, your notion of a branch office or campus has gone to everybody's house. People are sitting at home and working and they want to access both cloud-based SaaS services that our corporation might be offering, also be able to come to the cloud data center. So the connectivity and amount of load that you put on your edges in the data center has gone up, right? Second thing that has happened is, the, as as I was saying, using VPN-based tunneling is the old-fashioned way. It requires you to really create this VPN sort of uh, mesh, if you want to call it, right? But SD-WAN changes that. So SD-WAN is not just for connectivity of branch offices to campus, it can actually. Uh, uh, extended to provide connectivity to remote workers who are doing development. They may have to access databases. They may have to access big code repositories. So that's something has changed in terms of uh, how you think about connectivity to data center, uh, security, uh, because now security is also distributed. So I think the SD-WAN and security together coming in is a big opportunity for Juniper-like company. And uh, finally, which three recent technology trends
0: do you think will be the most consequential for data center networking going forward?
1: So I think the number one, I can uh, uh, definitely multi-cloud networking. Data center networking is not just restricted to data center. It also needs to provide connectivity to multiple clouds. Because the workloads are distributed, you have microservices based architecture that also may require you to have service meshes that span from a data center to on the cloud and so on. So that's definitely a new trend that will have impact with respect to how we think about networking. The second one in the data center space is that the networking is becoming application centric. It's no longer just IP-level networking because the microservices based architecture, with service meshes is making network more application centric. It's going to the end systems, and that's where you decide on connectivity, your policies, workload placements, distribution, and so on. So that's going to change how we think about networking data centers. Does that so that sounds like that also changes the
0: nature of the job of the network admin, network manager, in the, in the data I center. Um, yes, absolutely. Do you expect there to be a lot of um, learning curve? What, what does it mean for that for that for people in those roles?
1: So I think there are two things happen to them. First of all, lines of business take charge of the networking because they are now consuming it from microservices service mesh point of view. So the service you offer to your lines of business is changing. It's not driven by you telling them, this is your connectivity, use it. They tell you what they want. They are deploying the workload, which requires connectivity between the public cloud and data center and so on. So I think that changes the equation with respect to who has more control. Secondly, what expertise wise also, now the traditional networking admin has to now learn more about application level networking.
0: Mm.
1: You know, I'm going to be doing load balancing, security, all at the end system. This notion of smart mix that everybody is now going for uh, has two reasons in my opinion. One is of course, x86 cores are very expensive. So smart NICs allow you to reduce that cost. But more importantly now, switching on y like sidecar proxy, you can decouple all your controls in networking, such as micro segmentation, firewall load balancing from the workload, independent of them. They don't even have to know and you can start deploying policies to that. So I think and uh, that will change how network administrator now looks at end system. Today, typically data center thinks of networking as a fabric and end systems are managed by somebody else. But with the smart NIC, you're taking the peripher- uh, uh, perimeter of the network fabric, extending that to every network system, end system, independent of which hypervisor is running on it or which operating system is running on it. Now you can have uniform policies we span across end systems and network fabric with respect to network security, load balancing, workload placement, affinity policies, anti-affinity policies, and so on.
0: That's a big change. Okay, so, so multi-cloud, application-level networking, um, what's, what's the third big thing? Um,
1: th- third one is, a, um, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a, a tricky one because um, automation has been talked about for a long time. Everybody likes to talk about automation. People have been talking about automation uh, for at least uh, 15 years. I remember there was an IBM Autonomics project which basically said every system should be autonomic like our human body. We're still not there, but I do strongly believe that we are at the cusp of that trend actually happening, becoming true for multiple reasons. First of all, ML AI is no longer hype. It's part of everything. You have so much data available and you have computing power to start processing it, applying it, learning from it. So things like predictive, ad, uh, um, analytic, self-diagnosis, self-remediation are practical things and that trend is going to change the way data centers are designed, operated in my But when I chose the third one, I was in two minds. I also want to mention, which you mentioned earlier, which I really want to support is that data centers have to deal with this new thing happening where everybody wants to consume infrastructure as a service, which means the data centers might migrate from on-prem to colo locations And if I'm a big IT, I would not have my own data center. Instead, I'll go to co-location provider to say that you'll host my data center and provide me compute storage networking as a service. That's also a big change.
0: It's interesting because, so say maybe five, five to 10 years ago, let's, let's say five, it was, you know, as a service meant AWS. And, and now yeah. now the, the, the narrative is more as a service doesn't necessarily mean public cloud, it means data center as a service, yeah. literal a data center share. as a service building yeah. Um, yeah. and power. Yeah.
1: And that has implication, right? You don't have to carry CapEx now on your book, right? It's only OpEx now. And that OpEx can be directly line of business. So IT's role becomes very different. Okay, Raj, that's all I have. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.